I thank you, Father, for the letter of James. Sometimes we don't think of it as a thanks when we're listening to things that tell us we are not yet who you would call us to be, but we understand, Father, the, the, necess- the necessity of moving through this process and hearing from you in this way each week. Father, I'm coming into the text today having prepared and done my best to teach as I believe you've called me to teach, but, Father, the words of a man could never take the place of yours, and I pray, Father, that what would be said here would be according to your will. What would be heard would be the teaching of the Spirit, and that my involvement or anyone else's involvement this, this morning, Father, would merely be as a, as a means of bringing you glory as you work through the weaknesses of men. We thank you, Father, that you do work through us. We ask that you would continue that work in Jesus' name. Amen. There was the, the king of ancient Greece, King Hario II, and he commissioned a goldsmith to make him a new gold wreath, a new gold crown. And he was concerned that this goldsmith might cheat him by basically mixing some silver in with the gold. It wouldn't be visible, but it would have cheapened the quality of the material and the goldsmith would have been cheating the king. And he enlisted the support of a well-known Greek mathematician. You may have heard of him, Archimedes. And he asked Archimedes to come up with a way in which he could test and verify that this crown was 100% gold. But he couldn't do anything to destroy the crown. He couldn't melt it down. He couldn't uh, take a piece off. He had to leave the crown intact, otherwise it wouldn't be any good. So Archimedes had a difficult task. He had to figure out a way to test the purity of the gold of the crown without doing anything that destroyed the crown. One day, Archimedes was taking a bath. And while he was lying in the bath, thinking about the problem, he noticed that as he got into the water, the level in the tub rose from his displacement of the water as he sat in the tub. And he realized as he watched that, that he could use that effect to determine the purity of the gold in the crown without destroying it. By submerging the crown in water, it would displace an amount of water equal to its own volume. By doing that, it would give him the chance to then take the weight of water that was displaced and compare it to the weight of water displaced from a pure ingot of gold that weighed the same as the crown. And if the crown displaced less water weight than the ingot of gold, then it was made of something other than gold. It had less gold in it. As he thought through this possibility he got excited in fact he got so excited as stories are told of him that he literally jumped up out of the bath naked and ran through the streets of greece yelling eureka i have found it that's a true story what archimedes had discovered was simply a way of measuring the purity of a gold crown without destroying it and the purpose of that story this morning is it's actually a very nice picture of the main thrust of james's letter with respect to the issue of faith the letter of james describes how the Lord uses simple tests to determine the purity of our faith in everyday life. The Greek word for testing, back in James chapter 1, verse 3, talking about the testing of our faith. That Greek word for testing, dokiamian, means literally a proving of the purity of something. It's to the same point of what Archimedes had as his challenge. How do you prove the purity of gold in that crown? And James says God is all about testing the purity of our faith through different methods, different ways. And just like the Archimedes water test, the test that God uses to to look at the purity of our faith are non-destructive tests. They're not brought upon us to destroy us. They're brought upon us to reveal the purity or the impurities that might be present in our walk of faith. So we could say the Lord is at work in a, a lifetime of testing for the purity of our faith to find out if it's contaminated with something or one thing or another. And in chapter 1, the tests that were discussed were tests of trials. 
the things we don't want to experience, the things that make our life difficult, that come from out of the blue, out of nowhere, and then we have to face that trial in some way that tests our faith. In chapter 2, where we go to this morning, the tests change, but not the purpose. Just the kind of test, the manner of testing is going to be changing as the discussion moves forward. And this chapter opens up with an examination of how God tests our faith by our responses to people of varying social distinctions. How do we respond in relationships to people who have different social backgrounds? And in that response, there's a test. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. This is the second test of faith, this issue of favoritism. That's an interesting Greek word, by the way, favoritism in the Greek. It is prosopolempsia, which is a Hebrew idiom. Idiom is a turn of phrase that doesn't mean what it actually says. It means something else. So in this case, the phrase literally means lift up the face. That's what the word in Greek means. But it's an idiom. It refers to the way we would give attention to someone to the exclusion of other people. Kind of locking eyes on someone, looking up at them. All right, that's the sense of it. It means favoritism, but in that very specific sense. We're talking about a man or woman of faith who act wrongly in that faith, who sin, therefore fail a test of sorts. They're failing at this test that James is talking about by giving disproportionate favor or attention to somebody else in the faith relative to another person. They're favoring one over another. James now moves on to using an example to explain what he's talking about. Verse 2, he says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? The setting or the, the context for his example here is an assembly. But the word assembly in Greek is synagogue, which is the Greek transliteration of the word synagogue. And remember, this letter was written to Jewish Christians. The early church was predominantly Jewish, and they still met in synagogues. Just because they became Christian on one day doesn't mean the next day they said, we need a new building, we need a church. They went back to where they'd always been, which was the synagogue, and appropriately so. But they are doing something in that context that James says is sinful. Two different men, he says, enter your assembly, enter the service, basically. Like this world today in this room, two people enter in. One of them, he says, is wearing fine clothes. The words in Greek are gorgeous apparel, something very, very nice. And then the other, as he walks in, is clearly poor, and that's evidenced by dirty, or in the Greek, filthy clothes. So James has kind of painted two extremes here in his example. The rich man is known, he says, by a gold ring on his finger, but the word in Greek is a gold-fingered man. It would suggest that it is more than just one ring. He's come in like Liberace. And the point in that example is that he is not just rich, he's obviously rich. It's to illustrate the fact that we can take note of his wealth by how he looks. There's things that say he's rich all over him. Today it might not be gold-fingered rings, you know, gold-ringed fingers. It might be the watch he wears, the car he drives, the clothes he wears, all that kind of stuff mixed in, the, the kind of sunglasses he's chosen. You know how that works, right? The small cues that we can pick up on if we're looking, if we care, and we take note. And we say something about that person in our mind. It's this visibility of their wealth 
of their social status that becomes the test for us. The test of our faith. In a sense, you could say God brings that person into our moment. You now have a test in that moment. How do you respond to that knowledge that this person is wealthy? It's a test of how we think and it's a test of how we act. And in that test, the key to passing that test is the same solution, the same open book solution that James has proposed all the way back into chapter one. What is the solution? How do you solve the problem? How do you pass that test? Godly wisdom. Thinking like God thinks. Seeing it the way God sees it. When we align our thinking and our, and our actions with God, we are in his will. When we don't, we're sinning. So we seek after his will. Where do we go to find God's wisdom to understand how he sees the situation? First and foremost, we said last week, number one place you go, God's word. Counseled by the teaching of the spirit, of course. Informed as well by our prayer life and by the godly advice of those in the faith. But ultimately, all of those sources have to align with God's will in his word. That is the gold standard upon which we understand God's purposes. So we go to the word. And what does the word tell us? James chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He lines out the problem first, and then he'll offer the solution. He says, as each of these men walk into your assembly, and he speaks about a particular example here where the church has not done its job well, they are given different attention. The Greek word here for special attention means to regard with favor. The rich man, we know, looks wealthy, so the usher, literally a man or a woman who's got this role, leads them to the best place. I always find it interesting to ask the question, what's the best seat? You see, you might think it's here, but I notice it's empty, so I don't think it's here. Usually it's somewhere in the back, right? There's a joke about a church that that they redesigned the church, and they built it out so that it only had one pew in the back, and the pastor says, well, what's what's that going to do? We need pews everywhere. And they said, no, 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 pastor, watch. Sunday you'll see why we've done it this way. And sure enough, Sunday comes, the back pew fills up, and as soon as the last seat's taken, a mechanical uh, engine kicks in underneath the floor, and a belt starts to turn, and that pew just comes right up to the front. (laughs) And a new one pops up in the back. And after that one's filled up, it just keeps on. And by, by the time the service starts, everybody's filled the church, right? Well, the pastor loved that idea. So he got into the uh, pulpit and was excited to preach under these circumstances for the first time with people in the front row. And as 20 minutes pops by, 25 minutes pops by, he's still talking. As soon as 30 minutes pops by, a trap door opens and he falls through the... S- <laughs> so they had solved both problems. So the visibility is this test. And in this case, the man is ushered to the good seat. We know already from the story, as James tells it, the bad, the poor guy gets the reverse. He gets the worst place in the assembly, the lowly place. Now, there are two errors or two sins being committed here. The first of these sins is in the making of a judgment about someone's worth and then in the way we respond based on that judgment. That's one sin. How we think about them and how it turns to action in the way we treat them. That's a sin in the way James describes it. He says in verse four, they have made distinctions among themselves. And I think this extends beyond the usher. We're not just condemning one person's decision here. It would seem to me that if an usher makes those kinds of distinctions, it's probably reflective of the way the entire church thinks. That usher is simply putting into action the thinking of the people or at least the leadership of that church. And so the indictment here is a broad based one. We're not just talking about one guy who made one mistake. It's a way of thinking that must be evident in all that this church does. Now, regardless of the basis for that decision, in this case, the example is riches, right? Rich versus poor. But this isn't a story about how we treat rich and poor people. This is a discussion about making distinctions on any basis. 
So though in this particular case, the basis for the judgment was poverty or riches, that doesn't limit the conversation. We're talking about any means of making distinctions among those in the body of Christ. The fact that they're making a distinction, James says, is wrong. And it means they failed this test. God brought them a test of their faith and they failed it, at least in the way he's describing it here. Our faith must bring with it an understanding that all men have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And by faith, we also understand that Christ's blood is all that was necessary to make all of us new in Christ again, new creatures in the faith. We are all seated with Christ in the heavenly realm, according to the writer of Hebrews. We have the same opportunity for inheritance. We have the same worth before God. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says in Galatians, there's neither free nor slave, Greek nor Jew, male nor female. There is no distinction from God's point of view in, its, in terms of worth, in terms of our spiritual worth. So when we look upon brothers and sisters in the faith, and we assume on some basis that one is better than another. We sin. We sin because that's not what God does. We're not looking at them with eyes for eternity as God does. We're looking at them with earthly or worldly eyes, the way the world makes evaluations of people. And as I said, rich people, they're not more important than poor people. And by that same token, good-looking people, not more important than not so good-looking people. And smart people, not more valuable to the body of Christ than less smart people. Famous people, not better. UT grads, sorry, not better. Any attempt to reestablish that kind of pecking order, which our faith in Christ has eliminated, is a return to a sinful, ungodly view of, of men and women in place of the godly one we've been given through the Scriptures in the way the body of Christ is described. Anytime we try to bring that structure back, we're making a mistake. We're living in our flesh. Now, there was a time a few months ago when one of the elders in this church received a phone call from a representative of a TV celebrity. And the celebrity was in town in Austin to shoot an episode of a TV program. And the representative called us, called the elder, and said that celebrity wanted to worship somewhere on Sunday and they might come to this church. They were looking at this church as the place they wanted to worship. And they would be coming with a small entourage, group of visitors with them. And, of course, we told them they're welcome, of course, just like any other visitor would be welcome. And we, uh, you know, we were kind of hoping that their arrival wouldn't cause a distraction. But, you know, it's a small group, so it's probably going to be something of a distraction. But we were just going to try to work through it. And I have to be honest, I had some wondering in my own heart about what would the response be? What would our collective response be to this arrival on a Sunday morning? Now, in the end, they didn't show up. But then maybe that's just as well. But if you think about it, just the fact that they felt they had to call ahead like that says something either about the state of the church today and, and generally the, the American church or the world church that, that, that this person felt that's something they needed to do. Perhaps it says something about what they've experienced in the past. And they felt the need to give the church a heads up about their own arrival into the congregation. And perhaps it was an understandable concern, even if it's a bit sad that, that they had that expectation. But if that celebrity had arrived at Oak Hill Bible Church on that Sunday, would we have passed that test of faith? I certainly want to say we would. I'd like to think that the way we treat visitors here doesn't differ from one person to the next, that they would have had exactly the same experience that any other visitor that walks in this building has. That would be my hope. And I honestly can't say what would have happened, but I have an optimistic perspective, let me put it that way. 
But it is a test, isn't it? Would we have gone out of our way to give them a cup of water, to hand them bulletins, to ask them about their, their life? Would we have gone out of our way to make sure that you know, we gave them donuts? And, I mean, would we have done anything different? Or maybe the other extreme, maybe we would have not wanted them to think we were fawning over them, so we wouldn't have gone up and talked to them. You you see my point, right? Suddenly, everything we say and do, all our decision-making, is being filtered through a little voice in our head that's asking, what do we do with this celebrity? But even in that, if we're not failing the test, we're close to it. Because we're seeing them in a way God doesn't see them. Does God care that they're on TV? I can't imagine that he does, except that it's maybe his purpose for them. But my point is, it doesn't change who they are, not from God's point of view. I mean, would we have shown them to the best seat, as James explains? I don't think so. But I do think it's instructive to at least think about it for a moment, because someday somebody will walk in that door, maybe not a celebrity, maybe just somebody who's got money, or um, maybe they have something else the church seems to want, and that becomes a test for us in how we see them. That's James's concern. Because I do think we're generally very welcoming to visitors. I hear that from visitors. And I think we go out of our way to make sure they understand that the reason we're concerned or, or interested in them is because that's what we're supposed to do, not because we need something. But we have to understand what James is teaching about here and be prepared for it. Otherwise, you go blindly into those moments and you're risking the failure of a test because you're not prepared for it. You're not thinking about it. It's obvious from the letter that these churches he's writing to, they haven't been passing it. Because he's not talking about what ifs here. He seems to be suggesting this is their pattern. He says, our favoritism in verse 4, for the rich Christian over the poor one, stems from evil motives. And that's the second mistake. If the first mistake is judging them in our head and acting differently in our, our behavior, the second sin is the evil motive we have behind it all. Remember, Christ said, You may never have murdered, but if you've harbored hatred in your heart, you've committed the equivalent of murder. Similarly, even if we have not necessarily treated them different in every moment, the fact that we had a motive behind our desire is itself sin. And what evil motive here do you think he's referring to that gives rise to us making these distinctions between one Christian and another? Well, I think if we're honest with ourselves, the answer is pretty easy, isn't it? We favor someone who's rich because... We have a secret hope that they'll return our favor by using their wealth to reward us. We don't know how. We didn't necessarily even think about what way it might happen. We just have a feeling that there's something about the money that is a lure to us, and we'd love to be a party to it in some way. I I think we don't say that to ourselves, but if we get down to the nut of it when we're honest, we favor rich people because they have money. It's not complicated, and money is a lure. There was a story of a mission, an admissions counselor for a seminary who was interviewing a prospective missionary, a student in the, in the seminary, and he asked the obvious questions. Why, did you want to cho- why are you choosing a career in, in ministry? And the response from the student was, I dream of making a million dollars in ministry, just like my father. And the, the counselor sort of sat back and said, your father made a million dollars in ministry? Sort of exclaiming, you know, surprisingly. And the student replied, no, but he always dreamed of it. <laughs> That's the problem. It's, it's not the making, it's the dreaming. It's the desire. And we can go back to James's letter and remember the test came because the guy was obviously rich. If he walked in looking like anyone else and just happened to have money, you wouldn't know it, so you probably wouldn't treat him differently. The sin of it is because we think we see something in that person that's going to help us, we go after him. Whether it's personal, we think they're going to help us personally, or maybe just the church. 
And let me throw another test on the table that may be more likely the kind of thing that comes to our minds, and therefore it's more likely the sin we're susceptible to. Small churches, what do we want the most? People. Why? Because we love what we have, and we want to share it, and we don't want to see it go away. That's the honest answer, isn't it? And because if we can minister to them, it's a blessing to them and to us. So when someone comes, we say, we hope you like it. We hope you'll stay. And it's an honest desire, but be careful. Because the test of the faith in that is, what are we willing to do or think or say to that person that we don't do to the folks that are here every week because we're so interested in having them stick around? That's a favoritism in itself, and we have to be careful. We want people to be here, but we want God to send the right people, and we don't want to be disproportionately welcoming to those who we think may be able to help us in any way. That's not being fair. And that's not being, the, that's not being what God wants us to be in being even-handed. I don't want us to do less as a result. I want us to do more for everyone as a result, right? The answer is favor everyone equally good, not, not withhold your favoritism so that you don't run the risk of being unequal. James then gives us the wisdom now to deal with that test, how to face it. In verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Let's stop there because James just gives us here the the godly view. God's viewpoint on poor versus rich. Just off the top of my head, I remember Jesus saying to the disciples uh, who criticized the, the woman for taking her alabaster uh, 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 perfume bottle and giving all of it to Christ, they said, well, that should have been sold and given to the poor. Remember, I think it's Judas who says that. And Jesus' response is, you'll always have the poor. You won't always have me. Now, he's not saying it's good that there's always going to be poor. He understands it's just the reality of the world we live in in this day and age. But his point is, if your heart is for the poor, understand there's always going to be poor, and that's the reality of this world. We may be counted one of them, depending on who you talk to. But God chose the poor, James says, to be rich in faith, to be heirs of the kingdom. So when we show the poor scorn or or just simply dismiss them or don't pay any attention to them, we dishonor them, he says. We dishonor that person. The Greek word for dishonor is atamazo, and it literally means we treat them shamefully. We treat them shamefully. And I think the shame is shared. I think they feel ashamed and we are being shamed by our treatment of them. We treat them In a sense, I guess you could say, as if we are ashamed of them or ashamed for them. You know, we may not feel like we're the kind of person to fawn over the wealthy. Maybe not. But do we have the other side of the problem? Maybe if the person walks in here just looking like they're they're one meal away from starving to death or they come in here looking like they haven't had a clean pair of clothes on in a month or this church being by a highway gets those kinds of visitors from time to time. How do we respond? Are we... Are we treating them any differently than anyone else? If we see them with eyes for eternity, we then know they share the same future we have if they know the Lord. Do you understand that? That this life we live in right now that feels so real and and lasting is so temporary and unreal from an eternal point of view. When it's over and we look back on it, we're going to realize just how short it was. And then we'll be living in an eternity with risen brothers and sisters in the Lord, some of whom we had the chance to minister to and with in the years we lived here on earth, and and we're going to feel some regret, we all will to some extent, for the fact that we didn't see them with eyes for eternity. We didn't realize when we were being unkind to them or ungenerous to them that we were going to live with them for eternity. 
forgetting that for a moment and, and turning to them in those moments, recognizing them as our eternal brothers and sisters would have changed our perspective. And James says something here very, very important, theologically important. He says, God chose the poor. That's echoed by something Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, uh, verse 26, to that church he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame those which are strong and the base things of the world, the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. What he says, what Paul says, and what James is saying is, God has, by design, by his sovereign will and choice, created a church made up largely of misfits. He is saying, look among your brethren. There's not many of us wise, not many of us noble. We are misfits in the, in the sense of how the world would see this congregation, any congregation. We're the outcasts of the world. And God intended it to be that way. He chose or he selected in the terms of the, of the scripture. Those who would become part of the church in Corinth, and he did so in Corinth's case, among the poor of the city. By and large, the church in Corinth was a church made up of poor, uneducated misfits, which gives rise to the critics in the rich and wealthy classes who look on those in the faith and see them as those who need a crutch, right? You've heard that term? Christianity is a crutch for the underclass who don't have anything else to turn to. You've heard it in the last political campaign, right? Guns and church and all of that. That's the same thinking coming up from the upper classes and those of wealth and means to look down on those without it saying, that's why you depend on religion because it's all you got. That's what James says when he says they blaspheme the name you were called by. It's by design. It is literally God's purpose. He did it for a specific reason, so that at the time of judgment, God would shame the wise and the powerful and the mighty of this world by letting them see, by his grace, who was elevated into a glorious position, the poor and the underprivileged of the world. So the least of the world are being lifted up by faith, and they will receive a glorious inheritance, while those that the world thinks of as wealthy and powerful will be shown, as Jesus says in the letter to Laodicea, In the book of Revelation, these rich and powerful in the end will be shown to be who they really are, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. From God's point of view, godly eyes, that's who these people are. Now, this principle has exceptions, of course. It's not a hard, fast rule. It is a principle. And like any principle, there will be exceptions. There are some rich people, some wealthy people who have come to know the Lord. Praise the Lord. And there are certainly many poor people who don't. But it is also true if you look generally at the principle at work, there is great revival and following of Christ in the poorest parts of the world and the most destitute parts of the world and even in the wealthier countries like the United States. When you look at who really makes up the church holistically, many, many people are in the lower classes of this country by design, by God's choice. This is the principle God is at work in doing because it glorifies his name more that there is this reversal of man's pattern, of man's preferences to show that God's at work. You see the principle, by the way, reflected in lots of places of Scripture. I won't take time for us today, but I'll just mention a couple. You can look at them for yourself. One we studied here in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Remember in Luke 16, the story Jesus teaches about Lazarus and the rich man? 
The rich man who was an unbeliever but had all his pleasures of this world at his disposal. And Lazarus, the poor man with sores, laying outside the gate of the rich man, starving to death most of his life, but was a righteous man by faith. And then in the eternal realm, as they died and gone to, to be in their spirit form, there is a reversal of their circumstances. And that is God's intent, generally speaking. James moves on to say that not only is this differentiation sinful, it's fruitless. It's fruitless. He says, the rich don't respond to your favoritism. If this was our general pattern, and there are churches who do this, unfortunately, they make their marketing thrust about moving into neighborhoods of wealth and planting churches because it's like the old saying about the bank robber, whoever said it, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is. Similarly, why do these churches set up in, in parts of a city that are wealthy? Because that's where the money is. And money is what the church runs on in their estimation. And so they make an attempt to gain the favor of the rich. And what James says here is it's passing. It's, it's fruitless. It has no real lasting value. You can't trump God's purpose in his plan of salvation. The best you can do is collect a few of them, whoever God has appointed. The rest of them are just paying you lip service if they give you any attention at all. And in the long run, they blaspheme the name of Christ. You're not gaining their favor. Wealthy people take your favoritism for granted. They expect it. It's not like they feel you're doing them any favors. They don't feel any obligation to respond. Their view is, well, of course you're treating me nice. You're supposed to. I'm wealthy. I get what I deserve. I get everything I want. To do otherwise means they just despise you all the more. If you have doubts about these principles, pay attention to the news today about what the entertainment and political celebrities of our day say about Christianity or in light of Christianity. If you have any doubt about the principles James is espousing here, just look around. Do they tend to honor and respect Christians as a group? Do they tend to live their life according to its principles or have any interest in the faith principles of our, of our, of our belief system? Do they have any regard for it? I mean, for crying out loud, they go out of their way, it would seem to me, to disparage it. Late night comedians make a, a, a wonderful time making fun of Christians. The news media do the same. Political entities have very little regard anymore for, for our faith. And again, I'm not suggesting, and nor is Scripture teaching, that rich men have no hope and that all poor people are good. I'm not saying that. But there's a general principle here. And the bottom line is, don't show favoritism because it is not a godly perspective of people. It is a sinful perspective. It leads to sinful behaviors, and it comes out of an evil motive. Now, instead of failing these tests by sinning in favoritism, James now teaches how you do it differently. Verse 8, he says, If, however... You are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, this opens up an important area we'll talk more about when I come back to the letter again. But in verse 8, he commands us here about the royal law. Some of us have another word for this royal law. We call it the golden rule. It's the same basic principle that we would love others as we desire to be loved ourselves or as we see ourselves. Now, remember, Jesus, in the way this is quoted from Jesus' words, he said this in response to a question. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? You remember that part of the Gospels? And as he responded, he answered, there was the single most important commandment, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he added a second one. And the second one, only second one to that is love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that's the, the quote that James is using here. So James is taking for granted that these readers as believers have already done the first one. As a faithful follower in Christ, they are in the midst of giving themselves over to God in that wholehearted way. In their heart, soul, mind and strength. 
But now he's addressing number two. You see, this is where we've said from the beginning, this is a letter about sanctification, not a letter about salvation. So the first commandment is really an issue of how you become saved. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the... That is the epitome of a saved Christian walking in faith. But the second commandment is that horizontal one. If the first one is vertical, me and God, the second one is horizontal, me to other men and women. And now it's the test of my faith. Do I live like I believe? And that's what he's asking for here, the royal law. If we treat every person the way we would want to treat ourselves or have someone treat us, then he says we are doing the royal law, we are doing well. Do you think that's easy? Treating other people the way you want to be treated? Do you realize how ever-present that is in your life? From how you drive to how you park to how you throw your trash away to what you watch on TV to what you say to what you think about somebody when you watch them at work? I mean, you just it doesn't stop. That is the ever-present test of whether you are walking your faith. Do you treat, think, act, say, do what you would want them to do if it were you on the receiving end? But when you show partiality, if I show partiality for anyone, for any reason, do you see how it violates that rule? As soon as I show partiality on any basis at all, what have I started to do? Treat someone differently than I would want to be treated. Would you ever want to be on the losing end of a partiality scale of some kind? No. So by necessity, if I'm going to show this kind of universal love to everyone as though I want to be loved, I'm automatically at that point having to treat everybody equally. There's no other alternative. No one is better than anyone else in God's eyes. God gave two broad commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And he says unequivocally, if we show partiality, we break the second one. Next week, we're going to move forward into an examination of this law and how we run afoul of it. Because James gives a second test in this chapter. The first one is partiality. You pass it by seeing people the way God sees them. The second test of this chapter for next time we meet The test is one of activity, of action. Are we someone who does what we believe? Or are we stagnant? In other words, we've often seen, and you'll probably have already wondered about this, the second half of the chapter is often misunderstood because it seemed to be, at first glance, a teaching about how to be saved or what's required for salvation. And yet, that's never been the topic of the letter. It never is. His topic in this letter is fundamentally one of What does the Christian need to do to pass tests? And one test is activity, contribution, living something out, being what you say you are, doing something in response to your faith. We can fail that test. It doesn't mean we have stopped being a Christian. It means we are failing a test of our faith. And that's his second concern in the the second half of the letter. Some Christians have been historically seen as going too far in their understanding that the work of salvation was fulfilled by Christ on the cross. And they take it a step too far and they say, well, if all the work required to be saved was done by Christ on the cross, I don't have any work that I need to go do. Well, that's true if you're talking about working for salvation. It's not true if you're talking about keeping a law. You see, the law of Moses, the one that was associated with the Old Covenant, that's been fulfilled in Christ. We aren't under that law anymore. We have no obligation whatsoever with regard to the Old Testament law. All 613 commandments are completely fulfilled in Christ because they were fulfilled. They've been put away from our need to fulfill them. But the mistake is thinking that means nothing came in replacement of that law. And that's wrong. James says there's a royal law. He'll later call it the law of liberty. Paul calls it the law of Christ. There is a law that now attaches to us in the new covenant, which drives our thinking and our behavior now. What is that law? 
Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Think about how exhaustive and expansive that is, and you recognize that the law of Christ is a far more encompassing law than anything offered by Moses. And it covers every moment of our life. That's the law he's about to say we have to keep, we have to be prepared to live according to if we are to pass a test of our faith in that regard. But we'll come back in a couple of weeks when I'm back and we will look at the rest of chapter 2, hopefully, and consider that law. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful as always. We have to be thankful, Father, for the conviction of the Spirit, for we know it's the purposeful way in which you draw us closer to you in a walk that is glorifying to your name. But, Father, I pray that there would be a, a kind of encouragement as well in what we read. The encouragement, Father, to know that we are not working for our salvation. We are just as assuredly going to be a part of that eternal life with you today as we were yesterday or tomorrow. And with that freedom, that liberty now, Father, comes the opportunity to serve you in so many new ways. In a kind of joyful response as opposed to the dutiful weight of keeping a law we cannot keep. I pray, Father, that what James is teaching in partiality would influence our thinking, that we would cease to make distinctions among those we know or meet here or elsewhere, that we can truly say that in our hearts we see all men as you do. I pray, Father, you would give us the wisdom to see that way and to work that way and think that way. I pray we would not desire to show favor for some kind of evil motive. I pray our motives, Father, would always be your motives. And then I ask, Father, that as we contemplate the next part of this letter, that we would be prepared to ask ourselves if we are doing as you've expected by the law that you've given, treating our neighbors as we would desire to be treated, contemplating ways in which we can be more active and and purposeful in serving you. Give us a heart, Father, to, to want to do these things, to seek out opportunity and to accept them when they come our way. For those who are not here, Father, I pray that you're continuing to guide and watch over them and bring them back, Father, as you have an opportunity. And for the future opportunities to serve, we do ask for perhaps visitors or friends or others who may join us so that we may minister to them and with them and that they may minister to us. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to continue meeting here. And we do pray that all that we say and do is pleasing to you and glorifying to your name. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.